y'all have your Bible or uh, following along in the story, we're in chapter 10. Of course, in your Bible, we're in 1 Samuel, uh, and we're going to be in chapter 8 uh, this morning. You know, I, gotta, I forgot to admit and say or issue an apology on behalf of Thomas Hallam. He's not here this morning, but if your kid was scared of Thomas Wednesday night at Trunk or Treat, I, I uh, apologize, but I also think he got a very good kick out of being the headless horseman. And a lot of kids wondering if he was real or not. Uh, I think he'd been looking forward to that. Told me several months ago that he was looking forward to that. And uh, I think if your kid was afraid, just remember Thomas, he got a lot of joy out of it. So anyway, Thomas is in Denver this morning out of town, but uh, he did a good job, didn't he? He did a good job. In fact, I'd forgotten that's what he was, and I walked over there, and I was like, what is that? And I was like, oh, that's Thomas. Well, anyway, it was good stuff. Good stuff. Excited to be where we are this morning, and I want to start with this. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ and the faith of the Christian in their Lord is the last best hope. Of earth. Now don't miss what I just said. It's easy in times in our past, in our present, and of course in our near future where each of us will be subjected to the temptation to believe that that is not true. As you'll soon see in the moments to come that one of the great inclinations we all have, and even as the people of God, we've been tempted throughout history to put our hopes in lesser things, to place our hope in leaders, in men and women, in institutions and philosophies and ideas and quick fixes, and on and on it goes. But this morning as we plant our feet in chapter 10 of the story, and we enter into 1 Samuel, what we're going to see is a story of Israel stuck in transition. Being a people moving from desert Bedouin wanderers into an established people group. They're moving from a failed time under the judges into a coming monarchy under King David. But here in this liminal space, they're going to make a mistake with hope. It's going to be a mistake that will cost them and it's a mistake that will cost us as well. Their mistake is this. Because Israel, the one in 1 Samuel, gets their politics wrong. This morning we're going to dive into the text. And we're going to get to the privilege to see God's desire for His people. His ultimate aim as God and King. And yes, we're going to talk politics this morning. Now, it's going to be a little different than probably what you're already expecting, but I thought it would be good for us to start with some foundational proclamations. Three proclamations that we believe as a church, and then a couple just from my heart, personally, as a minister. First of all, I want us to know what we believe. That as a church, number one, we should and we can talk about difficult subjects. The Word of God, of course, is full of hard things. Controversy, difficulty. And we're supposed to wrestle with it. But as we wrestle, 
we affirm that what it does is it points us to the heart and will of God so we do not fear challenging conversation. What we do as a people is we face it with God. We face it with the Holy Spirit who will lead us to all truth. And we face it with love towards our brothers and sisters. Number two, we believe that we come to Scripture to be challenged, to be provoked, and to be transformed. We don't come to Scripture to have our assumptions affirmed. That is not the point of Scripture. Scripture is here to transform us, which takes challenge. And then thirdly, we affirm that history and all its ups and downs has an end point, and that end point is Jesus. Our faith is dependent on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the second coming, when all things are made right, we have a hope in the resurrection. And for us to wed our hope of the resurrection to anything other than Jesus is to strip the Christian faith of all its goodness and all its power. And we affirm that this morning. Those are three things we believe as a church, or at least I hope we believe. I hope we're challenged by Now, a couple things personally I want you to know about myself. What you're going to hear about today, I can be wrong about, and I admit that. What I'm going to say and what I'm going to teach out of 1 Samuel 8 and following this morning is a product of very much study. In fact, my master's thesis was written on this, but I can be wrong. Uh, I want to always hold my own ability to be certain or right with open hands, and I'm in need of transformation just as any one of us is. And second, I want you to know that I am very grateful for the country I live in. Very grateful. As Americans, we have so many great blessings that other places do not have. I'm thankful for those who have made that possible, for sacrifice and dedication of those who honor this country in special ways. Veterans and current service members, we honor you. I honor you. I want you to know that this morning. I also want you to know that because of the sensitive nature of this topic today, while the text leads us, that if there's confusion or if there's anything that's difficult or something that you don't understand, I have no meetings this afternoon, but I will be in my office from 3 to 4.30, and anybody that wants to come by and say, hey, I was a little confused about what you said here, or could you clarify here, I'm here for that. And I will be, my office door will be open, I'll just be hanging out up here. And so please come up and speak with me. Let's pray. And we're going to jump into the text this morning. Lord, just make yourself known today. Through our hearts, to our minds, to our very souls. Revive us, Lord. Show us in the text today how our only hope is you. And that's not just a Ideal or a theory, God, it is reality. Every moment of every day, all we have is you and all we need is you. Show us that again, Lord. May all that I say honor you today. May all that we do as a church family, as we seek to understand, as we seek to follow you, and as we seek to get along and to be the body of Christ, honor you as well. And forgive us, Lord, when we don't reconcile and love each other like we should. Thank you for the love that you've given us that surpasses knowledge. In the name of Jesus, we pray again. Amen.
I love what Mark Twain said once. He said, history never repeats itself, but it does rhyme. It's pretty good, right? History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And I think if you've lived any amount of time, you know this to be true. That's so important and and so true in many matters, but it's also true and maybe most true in matters that include government, politics, religion, our relationship with God, and ultimately where we place our hope. Consider these quotes as we work backwards in time. I want you to notice how history rhymes. It was Donald Trump in 2019 in his State of the Union address who said this. He said, we must keep America first in our hearts. We must keep freedom alive in our souls and we must always keep faith in America's destiny. Back in time, 2009, Barack Obama on TV said this quote, the United States as a country is still the last best hope on earth. Back a little further, George W. Bush on Ellis Island in 2002, provoking the words from John 1 verse 5, said this, The ideal of America is the hope of all mankind. That hope still lights our way and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Madeleine Albright in the 80s, as Speaker of the House, or in the 90s, sorry, said, If we have to use force as Americans, it's because we are America. We are the one indispensable nation. Now jumping back a few more decades, Woodrow Wilson was quoted as America entered into World War II as saying, I mean World War I, I apologize, as saying at last the world knows America as the savior of the world. Lincoln in 1863 called for the preservation of the U.S. through civil war. He said, said, just as Obama did in 2009, that the U.S. is the last best hope of earth. And Thomas Jefferson in 1801 in his inaugural address, standing in front of a crowd, referred to the U.S. and said, the world, its best hope is us. Now, I highlight our leaders and our presidents because that's our context, but certainly they have not been alone in provoking or seeing their cause and their country and their ideals as the fullness of God's hope and desire. The Middle Ages and the Crusades were baptized by the popes as the will of God to go and to conquer those who followed Islam. The British Empire and its colonial conquering of most of the world was upheld by biblical proof text and poor biblical understanding by kings and and other bishops. And on and on that goes as we work back in time. But maybe the original place where this misplaced hope is found wasn't in a speech by an official or a president or a king or an emperor, but is actually in the text. As we go back in time, maybe the original is 1 Samuel chapter 8. The text says this, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. What a way to start, right? And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. 
But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you, it is not they have re- you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And they have done, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. The Who in 1970 said it really well in their hit song, Meet the, Meet the New Boss, same as the old boss. What they were getting at is that throughout time, we always think that if we put our hopes in another figure, we'll therefore figure it out. And that's where our hope should be. And even Israel, in the time just before King David, is making that same mistake. I want you to remember, though, that what's going on here is a theme that's continuing throughout the text. It actually showed up early in the book of Exodus in a showdown between who was the real emperor, who was the real king of the earth. Was it Pharaoh or was it God? It got really clear in the book of Judges, and it was pretty subtle in Ruth, but what has been working in the background is this desire that Israel has for a king. But it's in the details of their desire for a king that you get this juicy irony in the text. They want a king, but the point is, what? They already have one. So we get to this question then, if if they already have a king, you probably already have an answer to the question, why does their request upset God so much? Well, the answer is this. In God's eyes, for them to put their hope in a man, he equates it to this. Any other king is just one more idol. A few weeks ago, if you remember, as we talked about idolatry in the story, we defined idolatry as an optional thing made essential. But I want you to add to that. Idolatry is this word that has a lot of different little hooks on it. You can hang a lot of different definitions on it. But if we add to that definition here in the context, idolatry is this. Their idolatry here is giving ultimate status to something or someone who does not and cannot wield such status. So they come to Samuel and they ask for a king. And God tells Samuel, give it to them. They're not rejecting you, but they're rejecting me. And then he equates it. The people's desire for a king is idolatry. Not because it's just some innocuous sin or some misguided desire by the people, but what God relates it to is a rejection of Him as their leader. He equates it to idolatry. And the reason is, is because God has a politic. God is political. Now let's all pause for a second, because when I say that, I know it's like... You're not supposed to talk about politics, right? In the Brown family, and this is family. But I want to redefine that word to what it actually means, and maybe that'll help us. So let's pause and take just a quick deep breath. Now let's admit, when we hear the word politic, it arouses all sorts of images and ideas and emotions in us. I asked my boys this week, what do you think of when you think of politics? And they gave the image that all of us probably think of. 
We think of politics, we think of parties, we think of donkeys and elephants, we think of officials, we think of isms like socialism or capitalism, and of course we think of candidates. Politics in the American mind in our setting concerns what people are doing in stone buildings in capital cities, right? Often that's why politics is not to be talked about because we can't agree about those things. It's also why you hear so many sentiments today, usually among people my age and younger, where people say, well, I'm not political. I don't want to be political. Because politics, by our running definition in our country, is almost always divisive. It's hurtful. And it's seemingly ineffective. But that's actually not what a politic is. And that's not what I'm speaking about when I say God is political. When we get to the actual original idea of what it means to have a politic, all of us are political. In fact, you can't help it. A politic is this. This is the original definition of a politic. A politic is whatever comprises the idea and pursuits of how people live together. It has to do with how we deal with each other, how we interact as a people in a society concerning wealth and poverty and crime and hope and all the things that make us a people together and where everything is headed as we work and live together. In a simple way, I would just say this. What's a politic? It means I'm concerned with, if I have a politic, I'm concerned with how we live together in public. The original word in Greek for politics simply meant of or concerning people living in a city. That's all it meant. The behavior of people. So when I say God has a politic, what I mean is God is concerned with the behavior of his people. So a more accurate definition actually gives us a deeper understanding of the question of why is God upset with the people's request for a king? Or a king like all the other nations. And when we understand what God's politic is, his desire for his people, he's upset because just as an idol steals our devotion, an idol steals and thieves us of our worship and our love, a king, or putting our hope in a man or woman, pulls us away from the distinct way that we as the people of God are to behave and live in the world. Remember this. This is clear in Scripture. Very clear in Scripture. God's covenant with his people was about behaving a certain way on earth. And it's very clear in Exodus 19. As he gives this covenant, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me, and listen to this phrase, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now that nation is, it doesn't have, we, we hear flags and we hear nation states, that's not what he means, he means a people. You will be for me a people. And what God says here is, I rescued you, I saved you, 
And I have a politic because I expect you to be my representatives. A kingdom of priests. And what's a priest? A priest is someone who displays who God is to the world. A politic. That's a politic. A behavior among people. A way of living and interacting in the world. So God has a politic. An expected covenant. An expected way of living among the world. And for them to ask to have a king like all other nations was them to deny the very essence of who they were to be as a people. Now I could spend more time in 1 Samuel, but let's just go ahead and jump in to us as New Testament people because what is true then of God's people in 1 Samuel is true now in 2023 for the people of Jesus because we have passages where it's just as clear. 1 Peter clearly drawing from Exodus 19. Peter in chapter 2, 9 and 10 says, you, speaking of Christians all over. We know that 1 Peter was a, was a letter that was copied and copied and copied and distributed all over the Roman Empire. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now I may be making everybody uncomfortable speaking of politics this way, and I certainly understand that. I'm a little nervous this morning, so I get it. But what I, what I believe, unless I'm shown a weight of evidence another way, is what Peter is writing of, and is still relevant today, is there is an expectation of Christians to have a certain politics. Because Jesus had a politic and God had a politic that Christianity is a politic. It is a certain way of living among the nations. Now Christianity is never partisan, but it is political. Because it is a statement that says Jesus is Lord, therefore no one else is. Amen? And the primary task of the church The primary task of the church. If I was to sum up all the New Testament, I tried to do that in two sentences, and here they are. Everything that talks about what the church is to do. And maybe a paraphrase of what Peter just said. Is that the primary task of the church is to live out our salvation by embodying and bearing witness to the King. We are saved Not just to go to heaven, but we are saved to await heaven and to live an alternative way of life, a politic that Jesus calls the kingdom of God here and now, the Jesus way. And so I want to give you this morning as we lead towards communion and as we celebrate what Jesus has done in communion and as we also lead towards communion this morning to say, this is who I want to be Because of what the king has done for me, I want to give you four ways that the Christian politic, the way of life in society is defined. What it's marked by. 
And the first thing that the Christian politic is, is marked by is baptism. Here's what baptism is. It is the voluntary induction into new life that gives our ultimate allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Now, you may be uncomfortable with this phrasing, but will allow me to use this phrasing. Baptism is a pledge of allegiance. It may bother you, but that's in the text. Look at what 1 Peter 3 says about baptism. He says, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. He's paralleling our baptism to Noah being saved through water. But he says, it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but what? A pledge of good conscience towards God. Another word for conscience there is a pledge of fidelity. And another word for fidelity, on, if you look at thesaurus.com, is allegiance. A pledge of fidelity. Your conscience, your mind, your whole being towards God. And it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what's being said about baptism in the text. Throughout the world, citizenship in nations is given by where you're born. Most of us are citizens of the U.S. because of where we were born. Some of us are citizens, like our friend David Calabrese, because he took a test. A test that none of us would have ever passed. Amen? <laughs> and he became a citizen. Moved from Italian to American, right? Or maybe your background. But the text... The New Testament declares that baptism is an induction to the kingdom of God that defies origin, birth, or location because it's a baptism into Christ that is free to all, open to all, and equally saving to all who want Jesus. Couldn't be more clear than Galatians 3, 27 and 28. This is a politic. He says, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What he says there is our baptism marks a way of life, a way of behaving in the world, a politic. Because in our baptism, we declare that in Christ, all human, all sociopolitical, all economic barriers have been defeated. They've been overcome. Baptism puts all who've come to Christ on equal ground at the foot of Jesus, covered in the blood of Jesus through his grace and his forgiveness. So our first mark is baptism. The second thing that marks a faithful Christian politic is our witness. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells us, you will be my witnesses. This isn't just some throwaway command or throwaway idea. Witnessing is not a practice reduced to Sundays that we come and sing a few songs and say, look, I was a witness. What Jesus has in mind is to bear witness is to tell the truth. To tell the truth of Jesus and to be truth tellers in such a way that invites all the world into this new humanity known as Christianity, the kingdom of God. And our witness is a politic because the way we witness displays who we are in every moment of every day. This, of course, includes the knowledge that you're going to mess up, you're going to sin, you're going to need forgiveness. Witnessing requires great humility because we are imperfect. But every day we witness to something. 
And it should be the mark of a Christian that we're always witnessing, like John the Baptist. He must increase, I must decrease. Christianity is not a private, hidden religion to keep to yourself. It's not like Buddhism that's an inner enlightenment. Christianity always has been and always should be a public expression of that there is a king who is king of kings and there is a lord who is lord of lords and there is a president who is president of presidents. If you allow me to use that term. And then our third mark of a Christian politic is our hope. Now remember, hope in opposition to the quotes from the political figures that you heard a few moments ago. Hope does not belong to powers of any government. Hope is first and foremost a theological term. Hope belongs to God. Now I thought I'd get some amens there, but you guys apparently whatever. All right. Hope in the Christian sense. You guys remember the, great, the best definition of hope? It is an anticipation of an insured future. Yes, you can rightly fully hope for an end of violence or hope for a better tomorrow or hope for a better job. But when hope is used in the quotes that we started with, in the ultimate sense as belonging to a nation, it undercuts the authority of Jesus Christ. This is why calling any country This is why Christianity started as an affront to Caesar as Lord. To make Jesus as Lord is to say that Caesar is not. Right? So that's why calling any country, including our own, the last best hope of earth, is a denial of the good news of Jesus. Hope belongs to Jesus, church. And when our hope is put in its rightful place in Him, it in fact strengthens our witness and it legitimizes our baptism and it helps us not look like hypocrites who say one thing in here and then go live like the world out there and nobody knows any different. Our last one is communion. Our last Christian politic is what we practice weekly. Now, many of us have never maybe considered this, that the practice of communion to be political. Maybe that's because we've watered down the communion to just practice, to just ritual. But communion is no mere ritual. It is a means of grace in which we know from Scripture that we are sitting and participating with Jesus himself. Do you believe that, church? It is a mystical moment in the presence of the one who gave body and blood. So if our politic is the Jesus kingdom way of life, then communion is our weekly fill-up. It's our fuel. And what it calls us to is to not separate bread and wine from Monday and Tuesday. And Wednesday, because to do so is to corrupt the supper. A classic case of this exact thing took place in the trenches of France during World War I. 
German troops were entrenched on one side, British and French troops on the other, and they had been dug in for weeks. In between them, no man's land. Bloody, horrible wrongdoings. But on Christmas Eve 1914, a truce was called by the leaders of all three countries. Somehow that night, a soldier, we don't know from which side, either German or the British and French side, trotted out into no man's land and put a Christmas tree in between the warring armies. Before long, a little soccer game broke out. And then after that, as the soldiers interacted with each other, they started to exchange gifts, just rations that they had among themselves. Early in the morning or late that night, you could even hear soldiers singing Silent Night in their own language. On the morning of 25th, Christmas Day, some soldiers even came out and with the best they could, they exchanged communion with each other. The bread and the wine, remembering the death of Jesus. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? Just for a moment in the middle of a war, the goodness of God was shared. But what's unfortunate is that the communion didn't hold sway for 24 hours. Because on the 26th, the truce was lifted and both sides began to kill each other. Those who had just shared the body of Jesus decided that the other was not worth dying for, but was worth killing. Now we could hold that moment with sentiment and emotion and it is a beautiful story, I'll give you that. But it does not hold up And it is not a sufficient enough story for what we're called to as disciples. The resumed war only undermines the bread and wine of its power. What I'm trying to say is that the blood of Jesus, if it holds any power on Sunday, for forgiveness, reconciliation, and grace, then it must hold the same sway every day. That's communion. It's a politic. Because the way I behave in the world is to pass on the grace I have received. And if I don't, I make a mockery of the cross. It's a politic. See, communion is given not only to remember, but it is given to transform. Communion is here to make us into a particular kind of people. It's a place where we celebrate our baptism and entrance into the kingdom of God. It's where we remember the grace that has been poured on us, the forgiveness that we found in the body and blood of Jesus. It's the communion that renews our hopes that Jesus is coming back to make everything new. And it's where we're strengthened in his sacrifice to share generously. It's where we're brought to forgive continuously, to wait patiently for his return, and to witness boldly that he is coming back. Do you want God was upset? Way back in 1 Samuel. Is that the people wanted a king. But what they really wanted was misplaced hope. And I think we keep repeating that sin over and over and over. Christianity is a politic because it's a way of life among the nations 
And it cannot and must not ever be co-opted with anyone other than the one who gave it. Jesus is Lord. If you need any prayers this morning, we're going to sing a song. We're here for you. We are going to offer an invitation. But after that song, we are going to have our guys come up and we're going to commune together. Parents, if you'd like to go get your children, uh, please go get them. And again, I want to reiterate that I will be in my office this afternoon, but I'm excited to share in communion with you this morning um, because I need to be formed more into the nature of Jesus. Let's stand together and let's sing. Could not climb in desperation.